Welcome to episode 112 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast made up of four of the greatest minds ever to discuss their passion for Linux on a well, podcast called Destination Linux. Two of us now. So. Well, I, I said it's, this is what the show is for, is of four people. However, right. there are only two on this particular episode. Because two, two of the of, four greatest minds. Right, two of the four. Okay, you mean to just yeah. redo it? Is there, are you happy, happy no, that No, I way? like it. Let's keep okay. going. Okay, okay. So two of the four podcasting compatriots were not available on this particular episode uh, because one was sick and one i think is napping is that was it was that what we decided yeah, I, I think he's falling asleep yeah he might be falling asleep <laughs> but uh so first we are joined by myself and ryan how are you doing ryan i am doing amazing today Unlike uh, Zeb, who's not feeling well, and we hope he gets better soon, or Noah, who just decided to sleep in today. Yep. We don't actually know what happened, but that's what we're going to assume. In fact, you can leave us your comments down below once again to <laughs> let us know Noah? where you think Noah is. <laughs> and we will read them or have him read them on the next episode. Yep. Uh, Ryan, what, what, what things have you been up to this week? Well, I released my video for Noah, funny enough. And he pays me back by not showing up today or sleeping in. But I released my video on the Pulse Audio, ways to get Pulse Audio to play better with USB interfaces, specifically the Scarlet. Although if you go into it, you could probably utilize it with any interface out there as well. So that's out there. And also I have an RGB free because this is something that true PC builders really look forward to is not having RGB in our systems anywhere. An RGB-free Noctua NHD15. And I will be releasing a video on this. This is a CPU cooler. This is the box that the CPU cooler comes in. That's a very big box for a cooler. An idea of how massive the CPU cooler is. Um, it is, in fact, 6.5 inches high, 6 inches wide, and 6.3 inches in depth and weighs 3 pounds. And the CPU cooler itself has 240 millimeter fans on it. So it's massive. It just barely fits in my case. And, well, it's running right now, and it keeps things quite cool. Yeah, so I did a little bit of I don't I'm not a big overclocker even though a lot of the PC builds and things I've done in the past that's what people want and I'll do it for them. I don't do it for myself because it really takes the life out of your equipment. Definitely can take the life out of your stuff. And I like reselling and just buying new stuff constantly, so my hardware is always on a rotation. In this case though with a fan like this, I decided to go ahead and do some of the motherboard overclockings. And it's quite interesting to see that even with the overclocking of an additional 400 megahertz on the CPU, it's way cooler than the very nice Spire uh, AMD fan that comes with the Ryzen 7 2700X. Still keeps it cooler than that, even overclocked. So pretty impressive feat so far. But I'll be doing a video on that on my channel coming up. So Michael, what have you been up to? I've been doing uh, some testing with the new Radeon Vega 64 that I got. Also, I'm so, I was so happy to be th- and thrilled that when I hooked it up, I was like, RGB, yeah. So, no. Because uh, RGB is fantastic. Yeah. It is cool sometimes. I had no idea I even had RGB, and it turned on. I was like, oh, okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, so I've been testing it out with you with some game streaming with me, Ryan, and a couple of people joining us, like Darkwind. Uh, we, were t- we were doing games like... Uh, 
uh, Ballistic Overkill, and we're going to start doing some more stuff. Uh, a variety of different games, we're going to start like doing it more often because I have a computer that can now do it, which is awesome. And I've been doing some improvements to the show. Hopefully the audio is good this week. Uh, I messed up last week. Like the week before, audio was perfect. Next week, not so good. But this time, we'll find out after the show. Consistency is key there, Michael. Consistency. I don't understand what that means. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be awesome to start streaming. And funny enough, there was a Linux group that reached out to us. They tagged me and you and some others in it saying, will you guys do more Linux game streaming because it's highly <laughs> represented in the market? It's just one of those things. So it kind of gave us an additional motivation, plus the fact you got a brand new video card that can be able to do it uh, to start streaming some more gaming out there to show it's very possible on Linux, very, very easy and works quite well. So, yep. Uh, especially if you have good settings for your OBS. I need to work on that, though. But it was really funny to see on uh, Twitter the, the message that was sent you know, asking us to do more gaming and streaming. And then the next day, we're like, well, interesting timing there. So, Yep, exactly. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get started with, th with this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's darn near free. Hmm. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. Uh, you can get started with a actually with a free two months free with a hundred dollar credit by going to do.co slash dl. That's do.co slash dl. You can use this one hundred dollar credit trial a bunch of their small droplets or even some of their big beefy droplets. Even in fact, you can try out their like a test run with their beefy sixteen gig RAM six yeah. virtual CPU droplet that has six terabytes of transfer. Again, you can get started with DigitalOcean with that one hundred dollar credit by going to do.co slash dl. And a th big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So before we get into the email, we just want to give a special thanks to everyone who has supported the GoFundMe page to bring Zeb to America. You have raised $1,376 of the $2,000 goal, and that's just incredible. The page is still up out there for you guys to support, and we're going to be bringing Zeb to Southeast Linux Fest. We're going to be doing live shows there from Southeast Linux Fest. Also, the Ask Noah show we'll be doing. We're going to do a DL show. We're also going to do some live streaming. It's going to be an absolute blast. And we have you to thank for going out there and supporting this. So thank you very, very much. Very much. Thank you. So the email this week we have from Ahmed from Mauritania and currently living in Dubai. He says, thanks for the awesome show. I don't want to make this a long email, but I'd like to comment on the email from a prior episode uh, from Haidor from Iraq about LibreOffice not supporting Arabic and RTL languages. I'm a writer and I've contributed a little translations to various open source projects such as Ubuntu Mate and Solus. So first, thank you very much for contributing uh, those languages and translations there. We appreciate that. He goes on to say, I've used Windows in Microsoft Office for 20 years before I switched to exclusively using Ubuntu and LibreOffice for professional work for the past two years. And it does support Arabic right-to-left text very well, even when mixed with English. I've never had an issue with it or had a client complain. 
Most LibreOffice versions shipped with modern distros like Ubuntu Mate 18.04 have this enabled by default. However, some older versions don't support this by default, which was the case when I tried Zubuntu 16.04. One workaround, which I've done in the past, is a package that I found just by using App Search to search for LibreOffice and grep for Arabic. I found this patch package LibreOffice L10 in AR or TAC, uh, depending if you're in the United States or not. And I installed it and it fixed the issue. There is also an icon in the toolbar to switch text direction from left to right. Also, the format menu, go to page and set direction to right to left. I hope this helps other fellow listeners who want to use LibreOffice for right to left languages. So I love this uh, email because, you know, the community can get out there and find solutions to things that we wouldn't obviously have a whole lot of experience in, such as, you know, the Arabic text in LibreOffice. But here he's come back uh, several episodes later to bring the answer uh, to the individuals out there. So, and it's good to know because it made sense that this option was out there and we yeah. didn't really ask whether what version of the distro or LibreOffice um, he was using back when we got that initial email. So it makes a lot a lot of sense that this is now better supported. Yeah, I, I was kind of sh shocked that if it didn't exist, because I would just assume that that's a very important piece of the Office suite anyway. So uh, it's, it's really good to know that we got to confirm that it totally does exist. But depending on what version that they were using, there might be missing packages. So uh, that's really nice that they also, we'll have this link to the, uh, the information in the show notes about what uh, the different packages you'll need and, and where the, the, everything is located. Because uh, if, in case you are having those issues, we're, we'll provide it because thanks to Ahmed for letting us know all this information, we can now uh, help uh, everybody else who was, who's might be affected by it. Yep. So we want to hear from our listeners. Send us an email this week, ask that burning question, or simply give us feedback. This week, I would love for you guys to send in your favorite software or your favorite tips and tricks in Linux. Send your email to comments at destinationlinux.org. We're always looking for new and awesome software to take a look at and spotlight, as well as feature great tips and tricks out there that you utilize in the community. So share those with us. Send that email to comments at destinationlinux.org. Linux kernel 5.0 was released uh, recently, and Linux 5.0 uh, is actually available on a lot of distros already now, like uh, all the rolling release, like uh, Arch. There uh, you yeah, go. go ahead like, and say I it was for waiting you. for you to drop the Arch uh, in there. All right, also, pretty sure Tumbleweed has it, and you sure. can you can get it uh, you can get it uh, backported on some other distros as well uh, from like the uh, the beta versions or beta repos. But anyway, it's coming out pretty soon, and hopefully, the next version of, of Ubuntu will have it. That would be great. Because then we get the hardware hardware enablement stack. That's a really difficult thing to say. Yeah, it is. Anyway, so this is actually kind of interesting because the 5.0 is not a. Um, it's it, it sounds like it's going to be a big major release as far as like like a lot of people think that software when they have the big major version number that it's typically breaking support for other things. And in most cases, in a lot of different projects, that is true. If they use the major minor. Uh, bug fix reversion system. However, Linux doesn't use that. They use a what we feel like, essentially. <laughs> so the the latest version 4.21 is what it could have been. They decided to just bump it up to 5.0. And the reasoning for this was that Linux or Linus, Linus Torvald said that he ran out of fingers and toes to count him. So that's a b good of a reason as any. I he think. literally said that. That's yeah. not even a joke. I love it. <laughs> 
Love it. I mean, it was a joke from his part, but I just love right. it. Right. It's just mainly because he's. They did that with uh, the 3.0 and the 4.0. So when they decided to switch to 3.0, they were like, just because it's been. A, we've been on 2.6 for long enough. Which, by the right. way, if you're not aware, they, the Linux kernel was on 2.6 for eight years. Oh wow! I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, it oh, was on from 2.6.0 to 2.6.39. So they decided to just jump it up to 3.0, and then. The same thing happened with 4.0. They were like, yeah, it's, it's close enough. Let's just do 4.0. So uh, so anyway, this one actually does have a lot of interesting things, especially for AMD users. We have the free FreeSync display support, which is great. So if you have a, a monitor that supports FreeSync, you can now utilize that in the Linux kernel with the Linux kernel. It also has a touchscreen support in the mainline kernel for the Raspberry Pi, which is awesome. Uh, there's also some NVIDIA stuff, but man, we'll just move on from that. Uh, there's, there's no team green people on this particular episode, so we can just That's skip right. that. So, <laughs> so um, if you are interested to try it out, you can actually use, um, get, if you're on Ubuntu, for example, you can update your kernel to the latest version if you wanted to use something like UKUU, um, but hopefully they'll will be available in a future release anyway, or, soon, or all the next release is coming up next month. But uh, Ryan, what do you think is like the most interesting for you in this release? Well, you know, personally, this release is, was impactful for me on the Radeon 7. So if you have the latest AMD offering out there and you go into Ubuntu, you're going to enjoy your $600 state-of-the-art video card in 1280 by 800 because it's not supported in the kernel. Uh, the only way to get it to work, in, and this is whether you're on 18.04 or 18.10, is to move to a kernel 4.20 plus in order to get support for it. So having the 5.0 kernel in 1904, which when 1904 releases in a few months or whenever it's supposed to come out, then we'll have uh, native support for all of the latest hardware out there, which is kind of a frustrating point for me. And I actually reached out to some of the devs over at Canonical to kind of discuss that, hey, you know, we're talking about the future of Linux here, but there's no hardware enablement stacks available unless you use something like you said, like UKUU, which is an amazing tool, but it's still hacking your system to try to get one piece of hardware to work. Yeah. And it, it, there's a lot of discussion back and forth on, well, we're, we're stable. You know, that's what we're known for. We're not trying to, we want to give people stability over maybe the ability to have the latest and greatest hardware running at that moment, or that it's on AMD to really create that relationship where they could do something unique. Cause I offered your discussion point there, Michael, that they could release an open source driver like NVIDIA does, but instead of, well, NVIDIA doesn't offer an open source driver, but NVIDIA offers a driver on top of that you can install on Linux. There's this proprietary, but AMD yeah. could do something like offer a open source version of that. We know AMD now has 10 more developers in the open source that they're hiring. So hopefully some things like that change, whether it's an issue with Ubuntu or AMD, the end goal for me is I want to get them to work together. Yeah, so I also however that on, happens. Yeah, I also yeah. plan on sending some messages over to AMD. I don't know if they'll do any good, but it's worth a shot to me uh, to get that to work. But there's also a lot of other hardware, because I know not everybody's an AMD fan, but there's other hardware out there that the 5.0 and later kernels bring support for. Some of these things are like artist tablets, Wacom tablets, Raspberry Pi things for retina displays, all of this stuff that you're not going to get unless you're on these later kernels. So holding these kernels back so long or making it a, you know, 
let's say a new user comes to Linux with their brand new video card and they try to boot, it's not going to be a great experience. So again, I think there's some middle ground there where there's some more work that can be done. But ultimately, the 5.0 kernel has gained, even from the 4.20 kernel in Arch, about a 20 to 30 frame per second difference on the Radeon 7 itself. That's a huge, massive gain. And this goes to show you exactly what AMD does each time, which I'm not a fan of, and I wish they would do this on launch, is they continue to make their drivers better and better and better as the months go on to the point where the card becomes what we all wanted it to be the moment it was launched. Yeah, um, they should so, keep getting it better and better and better, but start from a better stand, like starting point. Exactly, yeah. That'd be great. And, and that was the same case with the Vegas 64, et cetera, that you know, it just towards the end was just the greatest card. If it had started near there, it would have been completely received differently in the marketplace. So, um, but ultimately the 5.0 kernel is awesome. It's extremely stable, at least within Arch on Ubuntu. I am still using the 4.20 kernel which is very stable too on Ubuntu. I have not had a single issue or conflict utilizing UKUU and moving to a 4.20 kernel on Ubuntu. So it's very stable and it makes sense. They'll be going to it on 19.04, but we'll have to wait to that for others to be able to experience 5.0 and all the awesome features that it has packed in. Yeah, and just be clear, when I was talking about earlier about the 5.0 not being a major version, that's just like the version number doesn't really mean anything. But every time they make a new release, there's always massive new features and improvements and polishing and everything that comes on it. So no matter what version number it is, it's going to be a big release because Linux kernel always does that. Yeah, and Linux kernel 5.2 is pretty interesting too because the work never ends on the kernel. It's just amazing how many things get added in which also makes it amazing to me that so many people don't get to see this stuff unless they're on a rolling distro right away. Yeah. But there's just so many cool things coming in. For instance, 5.1 is going to include even more improved support for the Vega 20 line, uh, Intel CPUs and GPUs out there, as well as a bunch of features and fixes. But then 5.2 is bringing support for the Alveo FPGA board. So this is a PCI Express board made for machine learning, video transcoding, financial computing, um, you know, other workloads like that. Just all this new hardware that we used to look at and go, well, that will never have Linux support. All this stuff is starting to pile in. Logitech having some of their um, high-resolution scrolling drivers and things included in the kernel. Like things that we, at least in my uh, short time in Linux, I didn't remember seeing very often all of these hardware manufacturers starting to throw their drivers into the kernel and get support from them in there and seeing it just makes me so happy. I absolutely love it. Yeah, well, it's actually kind of interesting because I've been using for Linux for so long that um, this this is actually, uh, you're right about it, not you know not noticing, not the manufacturers not always being there because in some cases, there you'd have you'd have support for like all kinds of different peripherals like you know whatever logic boards or whatever, but it would take a little while for them to get access to it. So now that they're putting support for it before the, the kernel even comes out, for that version is awesome because you know there's a lot of stuff that even Intel is doing where they'll make support for their certain their CPUs that come out and they'll have support for those CPUs before the CPU itself comes out. So yeah. that is really awesome. Very cool stuff. So Disco Dingo now has a is our official mascot for Ubuntu 19.04 and listen, you know is a mascot an important thing? Let me just ask you that question, Michael. Do you think this matters? Is this even, why is this in our show? Okay. Depends on, the answer is yes and no. 
Sometimes the mascot is important. Sometimes it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. An individual, um, an individual release having a mascot is not necessarily that important. However, the art for this particular one, I like it. It's so good, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. It is quite good, and I'm, I, I hope they make a T-shirt for it because they usually do make shirts for their releases. And this one's like, this is quite good, and uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not only it's like good design, but it's also like adorable at the same time. Absolutely. It's a geometry-based dingo, if you guys haven't seen it, sporting a pair of headphones. And it has this disco 80s color theme. It's really hip and cool looking, unlike some of the other variations, which they may have been hip to other people. This is obviously something that some people are going to like. This is always going to be subjective, right? Yeah. Some people are going to look at it and go, I hate it. Some people like it. But I think more people in general are going to love the Disco Dingo theme, which ends up being on wallpapers. It ends up being on mm-hmm. T-shirts and other things. I might have to get me a Disco Dingo T-shirt. I'm just saying. Uh, yep. I'm, I, uh, I'm very tempted. You have to use that weird uh, Monopoly British money thing. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, uh, I'm very tempted. Uh, but it is it's, it is it's a good design. And I it kind of makes me think that they chose Disco Dingo name just so they can make this art. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, almost Star Fox-ish. <laughs> yeah, it kind of um, is. What it reminded me of. But, you know, when we talk about importance of this, I asked you that question uh, to kind of get your understanding as somebody who's very experienced in Linux. But I can tell you, I remember um, very often people would recommend me to go look at different distros when I was doing 30 Days of Linux. And back then, I didn't really understand the difference between, you know, uh, a distro in the desktop environment or anything else. So I was just looking at the whole overall experience when you go in. And part of that is what things look like. The yep. wallpaper that's in there, the themes that they choose, the menus. And a lot of times I would go into there and just look at something and it just felt old. You know, it felt old. The wallpaper was something that, you know, like a picture of a car that they picked off the internet or something in some of these distros. And it didn't give you a feeling like somebody had really spent a lot of time. Yeah, it didn't have that polish. Yeah, they didn't spend a lot of time caring about the user experience. And so I think that this type of stuff, while not major news, is important. And I think they did a fantastic job. The artwork here is first class. Yeah. Really well done. I do think I'd have to like just pretty much agree with everything you said about the, the importance of the polish because there's a lot of districts that don't do that amount of polish. And like, yeah, it's like with the, with the weird wallpapers are just like they just randomly went to Google and downloaded a, an image yep. uh, like that, that kind of thing does happen. And this is a good example of uh, you don't necessarily need a mascot for the company or for an individual distro, but you could have a mascot for individual releases so that there's a different uh, uh, there's a different I don't think it's, it's not really necessary to do it, but it does add a nice polish to it when you have every new release. There's something different about it. And there's something unique about the design. So in that sense, it is pretty good. Uh, and I do think that the design for the Disco Dingo is is awesome. So, yeah. And another thing is awesome is Wireshark. And Wireshark mm-hmm. recently released 3.0. So Wireshark, if you're not aware, is a network protocol analyzer. It's probably the most popular. Well, I almost guarantee it's the most popular because it's, it's such a huge, uh, hugely known project for this type of, of, of tool. And mm-hmm. it's used for troubleshooting, analysis, development, and education over networks. So you can you can use it for all kinds of things. Um, this latest release has fixed some significant bugs and has improved a lot of the code. And you can also uh, try it out, which is I think this 
the probably one of the best things of any kind of tool like this is to make it a, a make it possible to use an app image or one of the universal formats in order yeah. to try it out. Because you know it used to be you had a lot of setup time to make this work, uh, and, it, and a lot of these tools, like these network tools, require a lot of setup uh, most of the time. But having an app image where you can just download the the tool and then get started really quickly, and having support for pretty much all, if not, I mean, most, if not all, dish Linux distros using those formats. So it is awesome to see that. It's one of those situations where, for me, on my own home network and setup you can start looking at network statistics. You can start, in fact, I had a, a situation where an individual was getting onto my Wi-Fi network in order to play their Nintendo Switch. So obviously I had some security loopholes. This was right when we first moved in, so I didn't have anything set up. I just put in the router, but I was able to detect some weird traffic patterns going on utilizing this. So there are a lot of awesome things that you can do with Wireshark. It is a pro tool. And you need to have permission to be running this in any of the substantial tests and filters that they have within Wireshark. You shouldn't be, you know, going to your local coffee shop and running Wireshark on their network, for instance. Right. Um, Anything that, that, that allows you to do manipulate a network or track network information, you should always get permission first. Exactly. But you could certainly run this on your own home network and watch traffic kind of go across. There are multiple filters that you can run depending on what type of traffic you're wanting to capture. Um, out there and their user guides are fantastic. I will tell you that, you know, it, even though there is an app image, you will have to mess with permissions, make sure you set up proper groups or Wireshark group, for instance, and set up your ID so that it can access uh, various portions of your profile to be able to do some of the testing it does. So it's not yeah. as easy as just download the app image. Well, I mean, I, I might've said it wrong, but I was talking about how it used to be like a lot of setup. Now it's a lot less setup because you don't have to worry about whether you get the packages that work for your specific distro. You can just get the app image and then do the setup on top of it. Uh, yeah. But it is, it is, uh, it's because it's a pro tool. There is going to be a, a, a significant amount of setup. It's just not as much as it used to be, which is awesome. Yeah. I would say, you know, a good 10, 15 minutes reading the manual, you could start running your first tests out there. They have really good documentation. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Did you just say you read the manual? Yeah, no, it's weird. I'm starting to ruin my whole reputation. <laughs> um, but yeah, in this case, you definitely want to read the manual a little bit uh, to understand what you're doing. Uh, but for the most part, once you figure it out, you're like, oh, that's intuitive. Oh, that makes sense. You know, what you're running and what it's able to capture. But what I like about this version specifically is they've added over 20 more protocols in there, including things like Apple Wireless Direct Link, BTP, Distributed Ruby, just to name a few of the ones out there, but there is over 20 of them that they've added. So it just continues to get better and better. And this is the whole thing that we talked about an episode ago where you have this extraordinary professional tool that is open source that a home user can now go in, start utilizing, understand, maybe even learn it enough, take some courses and get a job because of the fact that it is open source and allows somebody to go out there and learn it on their own versus some of the other tools out there for, say, network administrative, although that one we were covering last week was a little bit different in purpose, where unless you can afford the big license fee, you're never going to be able to go learn that on your own, right? You're going to have to sit there and pay some um, big fee, get the license, and then it's, it's going to remove a whole bunch of people out there from a learning opportunity. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think it's really good that having your point about the open source, having access to it, it also means that people who are, are not necessarily have any access to having to be able to purchase software like teenagers or kids being able to do. And not, not only just this, but like if they're really interested in, you know, network administration and, and system, uh, you know, sysadmin stuff, this would be a good tool for that. But it's it's also possible to just apply that to all open source projects where they can do, um, you know, they could do the same philosophy of getting started easily because there's documentation online, there's access to try it out but without having to pay licensing fees and everything. So it, like open source itself is very important. And just the, the, this, the work that Wireshark provides uh, the user to be able to do on their own without having to go to a big corporation to get access to things is just amazing. Absolutely. And one fun project you guys can try is if you have any Windows 10 machines, you can hook up Wireshark and see how many times it phones home to Microsoft. That would be a fun project. <laughs> Absolutely. So another fun project out there is the Raspberry Pi-based Internet of Things gateway. So Newark and Element 14, well, Newark, Element 14, and Avnet have announced a Raspberry Pi-based Smart Edge Industrial IoT gateway. So this device will include options, and this is what really captured my attention, to add Z-Wave, Zigbee, or LoRa IoT communication protocol hardware into devices and customize the case for future upgrades. So why does this matter? Well, this is a custom solution case for a Raspberry Pi. This right here runs my Mozilla IoT. This right here is the Z-Wave dongle from AOTech. As you can see, it blocks any of the ports, anything from being plugged into here unless it was super thin. So even a regular standard USB um, card could not fit into there or these ports over here are open, so I kind of lose a port. Now this is only Z-Wave, so if I wanted to add Alora and I wanted to add Zigbee in here, additional dongles, you can see I'm completely out of space. I either have to put an extension in and now I'm gonna look like I have an Apple MacBook with dongles and wires hanging uh, all over the place. So that's why- <laughs> That's unacceptable. <laughs> that's why it caught my attention because basically what they're doing is they're creating this custom case and then they're including these chips that they're putting onto the device, but also leaving it open so that you can expand things in the future with this device. So those who have done setups for home automation devices like this are familiar with those protocols and trying to interface with the various devices because sometimes you have a lock that is Z-Wave that you want to use but then the lights you want to interface with are Zigbee. So you want to have the ability to interface with both without having dongles and everything hanging everywhere. So this was a really cool little option for the Raspberry Pi. Uh, we don't have a price yet on what this is going to be, but because it's based on Raspberry Pi, I assume it's not going to be super expensive out there, allow you to customize and add all of these different embedded uh, chips and things inside of it and make it much easier to kind of control the internet of things devices that you have as home automation starts becoming more and more popular. And man, it, you can go to Home Depot now and any of the basic stores and start seeing Z-Wave and Zigbee and all these IoT devices for locks mm -hmm. all over the place. So it is a very popular thing and having a good gateway for it is important. And Raspberry Pi makes one of the cheapest options, I think, out there to start. Yeah. And Z-Wave, I know Z-Wave is, is like a low, it's, it's a internet of things approach but it doesn't it's you can do it over your local network right is that's it, correct is the yep. same thing with zigbee yes i think all the protocols you can run on your local network you don't have to have the uh internet connection out there in fact it probably could be a bad idea unless you know how to do the security yeah. properly uh otherwise people will be unlocking your locks for you um but yeah i'm pretty sure all of these can although technically i've only played with z-wave 
Okay. Well, I, I mean, Z-Wave, I've, I've actually used that in the past, but not extensively uh, just to try out and to play with things. But I actually uh, am really interested in the home automation concept, although I haven't gone through the process of doing it because of effort. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's really nice to see something like this where you can use the Pi to, you know, expand it out much easier. And, uh, you know, I like the idea of, you know, especially not having to worry about dongles and everything is nice. Yeah, and also they're going to add support for Avnet's IoT Connect platform, which will allow it to connect to Microsoft Azure. So this is also something that would be used for more than just home use. This is kind of for industrial corporate offices as well, would utilize this device. And probably that's their target audience, small business out there, not us. But uh, But it's interesting that they're using the Raspberry Pi to focus on the businesses and, you know, the enterprise approach, because that's usually not what it's meant for. So, you know, it's pretty cool because they, they, you get the benefit of uh, them creating a, a product for those that, that type of, of uh, audience. But then the consumers also get a benefit of not having to uh, spend a ton of money because they can just use the pie to uh, attach to it. And you know, Absolutely. It's, it's a, a double, double benefit there. Yep. Now, if only the prices of the locks and all of this integrated Internet of Things devices would come down because yeah. it's ridiculous. There's, there's like light bulbs that are like $70. I was like, no, no, it's I'm not insane. doing that. I started to do a video series on it, and I was like, wow, well, by the time I'm done with this video series, I would have lost $700 in setting up Internet of Things stuff to try the Mozilla IoT. So I'm going to do it little by little by little. <laughs> That's by understandable, little. yeah. Very pricey. That's yeah. probably a better, but much better option. Yeah. So up next in the show, we're going to talk about PureOS. Uh, Purism has announced on their blog post that they have uh, achieved convergence for their Librem 5 phone and Librem-based laptops. They've, they announced this convergence this uh, past week, and they said that if you haven't been... Okay, first of all, let's just talk about If you're not sure what convergence means, it's a term that's been around for a couple years now. It was sort of started with uh, the Ubuntu Touch and the Ubuntu Phones uh, campaign that Ubuntu started a few, like, a, like six, seven years ago or so. Mm. And... Uh, unfortunately, Canonical decided to end their uh, attempt to go through convergence, but um, Purism has been doing it with their new, their new devices for their phone and their laptops. But convergence is using the same OS to run both uh, the software on both your phone and your PC. So your laptop, your desktop, or your phone could use the same software and the same operating system uh, when you wouldn't have to worry about uh, transitioning back and forth, you having a completely different systems that like, for example, with uh, Google devices, you have Chrome OS or Android, or if you have an Apple device, you have Mac OS or iOS, which are not, which have some kind of work together features, but are not really convergence. They're just somewhat connected. Uh, or if you have um, an Android device and you have a Linux system, you could use KD connect to accomplish right. some similar things. So PureOS is the operating system that Purism has, has made for their Librem lines and the, the, with their upcoming mobile handset and their current line of laptops, they will be able to uh, achieve this uh, style of convergence. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting to me is they're on their website, they're saying that they have achieved it rather than that they will achieve it. And since the Librem 5 doesn't actually exist yet, it's weirdly phrased and a little bit jumping the line in that in that area jumping the shark as they say a little bit yeah a little bit yeah well i i think it's interesting i'm excited that linux you know we have a linux product line here that is seeking this convergence outside of just kd connect kd connect being the greatest example of 
a version of convergence, but mm -hmm. it's the same version that, and, and I think Apple, frankly, probably does this the best and one of the first ones to try to implement a cross functionality between messaging and things like that between your laptop and your phone. And a lot of people love that ability. For instance, you know, if you're at work and you have to keep your phone in a drawer or whatever, um, or you just don't have it on the side, but somebody messages you, say your wife or a friend or a colleague or whatever, then you're going to see that pop up on your Mac. Now, KDE Connect brought that to Linux. Amazing ability through your Android phone, but your Android phone has to be, does it still have to be plugged in for KDE Connect? No, so. it doesn't have to be plugged in. It just has to be on the Wi-Fi. It has to be on the Wi-Fi. Okay. Yeah. So if you don't um, have access to the Wi-Fi for whatever device, it wouldn't work. Or if you have to use like different, sometimes there have like companies will have different um, like connect when you connect to your power through uh, your like an Ethernet cable, you would be on one network and your phone would be connected to a Wi-Fi on a different network and then it wouldn't work. Okay. So there's a little bit of differences between how the implementations of two different OSs, they were trying to create convergence through apps. In this case, you have the Librem 5 phone and the laptop, which will be running the same OS. So essentially everything would be the same, right? When you move over, you'd be getting messages on both devices. You'd have that convergence there. You'd have the ability to open the same apps within both devices. Although, and, and I would imagine some apps won't work very well on a phone yeah. regardless, but you would have that ability to do that. Um, so it's an interesting idea. And there are developer kits out there for Librem 5, which is assuming because they do have some videos out there showing some of the convergence that they have. And mostly the videos show certain applications that they're able to minimize from go from a phone size you know, display to all the way to a full screen that you would see on a laptop or monitor kind of demonstration. And they have put the um, kit out there for all the app developers to start making their apps ready for convergence, that to have the ability to add that functionality in. So I'm very happy about this. I think this is very cool stuff. I, I agree they kind of jumped the gun a little bit, but why not in a marketing world, right, where everybody else is jumping on things. It's not like well, it's they could have, true. It's just they don't have that device out into the market. Well, the reason I thought it was weird is because they could have just said, hey, we've achieved this technology and we will be releasing it with this. But they were saying that welcome to the future is the part of the name of their title <laughs> blog. It's like, but it's not here yet. So. It's so future you can't use it yet. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to the future that will be. <laughs> it's what they're kind of, it's what they, they should have said that. But I, I agree that it is an awesome thing to that it's happening and i can't wait to, i mean i before they even announced this i couldn't wait to try out the Libra 5 anyway so yeah. uh like this is uh great news and also we have the the team at the pine 64 team making their own linux phone so we're yeah. going to have some you know we're lots of options for people who are enthusiasts for linux who want to have a phone that it's not android or ios which is great to see that's the dream. I yeah. mean, just to be able to get rid of either of these. Uh, unfortunately, Librem 5 has received an additional delay into the third quarter of 2019. The rumors that I've heard is because they had issues in the developer kit with the CPU they had chosen at that time and certain functionalities. The, so there was a display problem, but the main thing is that okay. the, they were they decided to use a different, that like they were having a problem with the CPU that they had because it wasn't working right with the display, but they were able to upgrade it to a newer version of the CPU, which will be uh, a better device, but it will take longer to get done. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to get our hands on that device and some reviews on it here shortly, because I'm very excited about what they're doing here. And I am 
a huge fan. I hope that they are extremely successful in this because we need a good third player, and they look to be one of the closest ones to having not only the hardware but software options available. Yeah, and their their dedication and focus to pr- uh, privacy is also very important. Yep. So, Michael, speaking of the future, did you know that the future of science is open source? Of course you knew that. You love open source. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be, right? I assumed. Uh, but <laughs> so the scientific community is looking to leverage the power of open source and some recent articles by Glenn Moody has made the case that individuals working in the science community would benefit greatly from free software code apps, tools, and libraries that open source offers the points made by the author further proven by taking a look at project Jupiter, which I've been doing some research on um, this week and just such a cool project out there. Um, Project Jupiter is a set of open source software projects that form the building blocks of interactive and exploratory computing that is reproducible in multi-language. The main application offered by Jupiter is the Jupyter Notebook, a web-based interactive a computing platform that allows users to author documents that combine live code, equations, narrative text, interactive dashboard, and other rich media. So if you've ever seen journals before, typically uh, they were done in Mathematica from Wolfram Research, which is a closed source project out there. But they were really one of the ones that kind of brought this idea of having some visualizations and abilities to interact. That is, if you have the license and software and pay for it with some of this. But Jupiter takes all this and open sources it, meaning if you release this scientific journal out there and you have some patterns that you're trying to display or certain mathematical equations and you want community input, you want that feedback to build upon it or for a student to come in there and see it and say, ooh, I could take this and take it here. But if you just get a PDF file or you just get a you know document you're not going to be able, you're going to have to manually go in there and try to figure out what their diagrams are showing or whatnot. Whereas in tools like this, you can create animations, you can show it live and people can go in there and start manipulating the calculations or modifying them to make sure that they're coming to the right conclusions. From a scientific standpoint, this to me is an amazing breakthrough. And the fact that we can offer it completely open source means that students who get things like uh, Mathematica from Wolfram Research, like when I was in college, you get the free license. But as soon as you leave, you lose that free license. Now you got to pay for it if you want to use it again. This allows students and hopefully schools too to adopt an open source platform that students who get used to utilizing this tool can continue to utilize it for free afterwards. Plus, there's just so much more that's been added into Jupiter as a tool than what's available in the closed source variation now. Now, I did read some articles talking about some people don't want that manipulation out there, right? They want to keep things a secret. So they want to use that closed source platform. So that was an interesting kind of side twist to the conversation that I hadn't thought of before. You know, like if you have a big scientific breakthrough that you've spent millions on, you don't want that out there for people to play. Well, you could still, in theory, you could still use the software and just not release the information or release access to that software. Into the journal. Yeah, to right. the, the data. So it's possible that they could still use this software but not worry about, you know, publishing it because they, they're still working on the science to make sure that it's it's sound before they release it. You know, there's there's options like that. So I think that even the proprietary, like, the proprietary software shouldn't really have anything to do with the data that is built using it. So I don't think that that would make much of a difference, but it is an interesting point because I hadn't thought of it either. But I do think that there's there's solutions for that, and I and I think that the 
the fact that this is open source is amazing because it makes uh, peer, uh, you know, in science, peer review is one of the most important things to Absolutely. verify your science. And this way, not only can they review your work, they can help you do it. And, you know, you could do like the collaborative uh, stuff that they can do with this and the interactive structure of it is an, a very interesting thing, um, you know, because as far as like the releasing publishing information for scientific research uh, there it's scattered in so many different places and having a single place that you can teach uh, kids and you know when they get started with doing experiments they can use the same software when they doing it in schools and then when they get out it's going to make it a lot easier and a lot more of a shared community approach which i find uh, completely awesome yeah, absolutely. And and this was Project Jupiter was spun off of IPython in 2014. I don't have done a ton of research, but as I understand, IPython was just basically a variation with of this with uh, just utilizing Python language. Yeah. And then when they put Project Jupiter, they took all of these different projects and com- all these tools and combined them into one, which means that now you can utilize a whole plethora of languages, different languages that you want to create uh, your code in your journal uh, notebook out there. And it's just, it's so cool to think about that students now without any cost to them can go interact with these scientific journals and engage in them, whether you've gone to college, whether you don't plan to go in college, doesn't matter. You're going to have the same access as everybody else. It also goes back to the whole thing we talked about with Wireshark having access to as an open source. We don't have to pay for that license fee. This allows you to actually do, you know, get, even if you, weren't doing you know going to school for some kind of scientific degree you could still start trying it out and see if you would you do like it in a earlier stage or even like as a as a amateur scientist that that kind of thing opens it up so much more widely to so many people that it has a ton a ton of potential yep absolutely another thing that has a ton of potential is the davd video decoder which i don't know if they want you to say it this way but I want it to be. So from now on, I'm just going to refer to it as David. <laughs> so David version 0.2 of the AV1 video decoder was released. And this has a support for older PCs and ARM mobile uh, devices. Now, to, before we move on, I just want to point out that if you're not aware, the AV1 uh, d- d- video codec or format is a very important, uh, potentially game-changing uh, codec because, well, the the most commonly used uh, format is currently the MP4 or uh, X264 uh, or H264 uh, codecs, and right. they're the most widespread because and they're the most well well supported. But there's um there's also there's a competition to replace the X264 or the H264, and currently the H265 is what is looked at as a potential replacement. However, the AV1 is an open source, royalty-free alternative to the H.265 and has reported 20% better data compression than the H.265 and 50% better than the H.264. So there's likelihood that the the associations will decide to use uh, the AV1 as the standardized format, which would be huge for just the open source community, but also huge for uh, content creators because we don't have to worry about whether our files are going to be taken down because we don't have the rights to use that format or whatever. So this is awesome. And the video decoder that for the, the David video decoder is a really cool thing that's being developed by uh, video land, 
who also develops uh, VLC. So if you're not aware, Videoland, that's who makes VLC. And so this is a huge game-changing thing, and uh, I'm so excited about this. Yeah, so it's interesting because recently I was playing with a um, alpha closed testing for Wimpy on uh, Ubuntu Mate, and he is putting Ubuntu Mate on Raspberry Pis, and he's experimenting with it, and it's just beautiful. You boot it up and you get that beautiful Mate desktop on a Raspberry Pi, the beautiful menus, everything is working really, really well. Again, it's an alpha. It's not out there for everyone uh, to utilize just yet, but you guys are going to love it when you get your hands on it. But one of the biggest issues that I saw for performance was when you would open Firefox and try to do any video playback. And there were some reasons for this that could be fixed uh, once this comes out of alpha to help with hardware acceleration, et cetera. But also I kept thinking about the story here when we were doing that with the codecs that are used in the back end. Because when you go to something like a YouTube, for instance, and try to play it on the Raspberry Pi, you just get this stuttering that happens, right? It can't handle that, um, that codec. So in this case, they were able to do testing with this AV1 utilizing these ARM-based devices. And the benchmark showed that devices were able to play 1080p video at 30 frames per second. Then any of the quad-core-based ARM devices were able to handle 1440p at 60 frames per second and 2160 at 30 frames per second, which means these type of issues are going to essentially go, meaning you could do so much more now with this little device, this $30 computer, uh, and being able to do um, anything with video and media related items, such as if you're running a Plex or Kodi server and you're doing playback, because you can run those off of Raspberry Pi. The problem is the stuttering and everything that happens with yeah. the playback, right? It just can't handle, uh, the processor just can't keep up. So in this case, by having an improved software codec, you now will be able to you know, do that more effectively, unleash more power out of this already ridiculously low cost piece of hardware yeah that's a, that's a great point and the, the raspberry pi making it a lot easier to do that would be awesome because i have used Kobe on a raspberry pi and you are right if you're doing 720p video you're probably okay maybe a little bit yep. buffering 1080p video if you have 30 frames 1080p you have some buffering or whatever but if you have 60 frame 1080p it might not even play for a while yeah yep. or if it depending on how if you're trying to do it over your network it, it might be kind of impossible depending on how much data you have swing going back and forth so it, it's really cool that the video decoder improves the data compression which makes it faster to send the data over and also it's a better performance as far as rendering it so like there's a ton of cool things about it and there's also work to get the av1 uh, video decoder and uh, in, in a hardware sense not just in a software decoder like the david thing is uh, so like having all this work being done for this one um, type of codec is fantastic because it'll one it'll provide a solution to provide royalty free open source approaches but at the same time it'll be more consistent over whatever platform whatever device you want which is fantastic yep so intel users guess what's back in the news you're going to be so not excited it's another speculative attack <laughs> um researchers at worcester polytechnic institute discovered the new speculative attack dubbed spoiler which is speculative load hazards boost, row hammer, and cache attacks. 
And as we found out earlier, that is not an acronym. <laughs> Definitely not. Not an acronym. Uh, Intel was notified about these issues a few months ago, yet we have no hardware or software fixes available. One of the reasons researchers are speculating that we don't have a fix is because it means additional performance hits. We know that in the first round of patching for these vulnerabilities, there was a big hardware yeah, and now they're thinking this would be an additional hardware hit on top of it. AMD and ARM CPUs are not believed to be impacted by this. So kind of deja vu all over again in this particular spoiler attack. Um, what they say is, in this work, we are first to show the dependency resolution logic that serves the speculative load can be exploited to gain information about the physical page mappings. Microarchitectural side channel attacks such as row hammer and cache attacks rely on reverse engineering of the virtual the phys- uh, physical address mapping. Now I can hear Zeb right now going, yeah, blah, blah, blah. What does that mean for the end user? Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, this type of attack can actually be initiated through JavaScript, which means it can be initiated over the web on a malicious website. So that makes it a pretty dangerous situation. But to what we would be saying to Zeb's point, Zeb would go, well, Ryan, has there been any attacks utilizing this? We're not aware of any. So there's been no attacks utilizing this stuff yet, but it's still a pretty significant security hole that's going to need to be patched. Yeah, there's, there's a, it's definitely not a good thing in any way whatsoever. Uh, it's, it's an interesting situation that Intel is dealing with that they, they're in some cases they're doing awesome things like open sourcing Thunderbolt three. And then the other things they're doing this kind of thing where they are aware of a problem and they choose not to fix it. But to be fair, did they even fix the the other one? I think the kernel fixed it really fixed it. Well, I know they patched some of it because we know we got the performance hits, but I don't know that they fixed. Well, it I think all. the I think the in the, in the the other one like the spe, the Spectre and Meltdown. I think the kernel had to fix all of it. So like it was yeah. a, like it, so them not fixing is not really surprising. In Isn't that, that case. the one where Linus got really mad at him? Yeah. Yes, oh, said they they don't send that crap code to me again or something. I love that. Man. Yeah, yeah, it's really tough compromise, and I I, I kind of Intel's in a rock and a hard place a little yeah. bit because. If they go out there and put additional performance hit, obviously that's going to hurt them. The users don't want it typically. Um, out, you know, I mean, these same people who complain about this are going to go out there and log onto their Facebook account right afterwards. So, you know, they're practically giving all their information away, anyways. Um, but Intel's response to it wasn't my favorite. They're stating the software can be protected by good development practices and avoiding control flows dependent on the data of interest. So they basically throw it back and say, well, if people do their code correctly, they won't be yeah. able to execute on this. Yeah, if it's, it's, it could be protected by good development and practices and avoiding control flows dependent, or, or you know, making your hardware not bad. Yeah. One of the two. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they purposely made it bad. They were trying to, you know, um, increase speed and things like that, but weren't thinking about yeah. the security. It, it, there's a situation of there's the concept that was that first started this whole speculative thing was created in like I think the 60s or 70s that they were like they they were doing it on or no it was the 80s and they were doing it with uh, big mainframes that they didn't have any expectation of you know getting to that level where it wouldn't it would matter but they knew back then it wasn't the best option. And it just kind of continued without finding a replacement. So apparently this is like another continuation of that concept where they're trying to get the most performance they could possibly get, even if that means cutting a few corners. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's hopefully, 
they get this you know addressed soon. Um, and I, I think that Intel is a good that makes good products. And it's and it's not like I'm just you know wanting to bash them and talk about it and say like you know they're, they're making bad hardware. It's just like their mm-hmm. response could have been at least more aware of the the fault the blame that they should have for themselves in there yeah Yeah, some urgency and also taking some responsibility of the things that they did you know but you know i i agree with you you know everybody says i'm team red fanboy it's kind of true but i don't want intel to fail at all i think intel makes great products in fact before if you look back even the beginning of my videos i was all on intel nvidia stuff there so i use what i think is best uh out there uh, I'm very excited for Intel's GPU offerings, for instance, to enter into the market. A lot of it because of the fact that they are so involved in open sourcing, especially with their drivers and their non-external GPUs today. You know, they offer great support within the kernels for a lot of their chips and cards out there. And so I want them to be successful. I also want them to stop making statements like this to remove any of the urgency out of it. Um, yeah. So I, I hope they can fix this along with maybe, uh, you know, doing some work and open sourcing some other elements that they could utilize the community to help them fix some of the stuff here. All right. So on to more exciting things. In fact, the most exciting thing here. Absolutely. I, I was so excited about this because this was meant to be Zeb's, but Zeb literally got himself sick. So he wouldn't have to show up to do this article, which I don't understand because it, it's perfect for Zeb. He would love this. He, oh, if he was here right now, you would just see his cheeks would get rosy. He'd be so excited with a big smile as he covered Proto Corgi. Proto Corgi is a game made with free and open source code leveraging, is it the Godot engine? Uh, Godot. Godot engine. This is a shoot 'em up arcade style game paying respect to many classic shooters of the past. It features tight controls, smooth gameplays, tons of action. Here's, here's the kicker here. And a cute puppy named Bullet. A C3 squared cute cyborg corgi cybernetic pup in his quest for saving his owner. A brilliant scientist kidnapped by a strange alien race that wants to rule the galaxy. Now, I want to, for the listeners here who don't have the ability to immediately run to Steam and purchase the game or, um, you know, watch a YouTube video on it. Uh, give you a visual. Imagine a corgi, which is a little tiny puppy that you know um, a lot of people carry around in their purses and stuff in fancy towns. As one would do. Sure. Yeah, yeah, naturally. And strap missiles and everything to it, right? Right. right. Like an R-type spaceship. And then it floats around and barks as it shoots missiles at other things, destroying it. It's incredible. Absolutely. It is a fantastic... uh, Zeb is just going to just kick himself for missing it but it, it is an interesting thing um you might want to adjust some of the volume for it uh because it, there's a um, the barking soundtrack the barking sound yeah this is just <laughs> the barking part yeah other That's than that part <laughs> every time you fire missiles <laughs> and you're that constantly firing missiles so <laughs> that would never get old uh, but it's a it's an interesting game because of how much like you can you can obviously tell they're having fun with it and just making yeah. it a ridiculous game because they wanted to, and yeah. that itself is is kind of admirable because if someone's gonna go through the process of doing that it's you know the, the making a game has to be very difficult so right. if you're if they're making a game to you know to amuse themselves on top of it I think that's a, a funny uh, approach as well and it is totally ridiculous but at the same time I kind of want to play it. Yeah, if it was multiplayer, I would stream it because 
it would be the funnest game to play with people live, especially oh, yeah. seeing people come onto the stream. Like you have a Radeon Seven and you're playing Proto Corgi on live. <laughs> well, yes, I am. Like, yeah. what, what else would I play? What are you talking about? Right, exactly. What else is there out there? Now, Zeb did see this article, Michael, and he left a comment in there. But unfortunately, folks, we will not be able to repeat that comment because it is full of swear words. <laughs> All I read was, this is amazing. I can't wait to play it. That's what yeah, I'm saying. What... In between, that's what I was gathering yeah. out of it. How exciting. I, I see. Are you kidding me? I can't believe this is coming out is what I think he meant to tell Right. That. It's like, are you yeah. kidding me? This is the next thing I'm going to be playing. <laughs> That's what it meant. Absolutely. Yep, exactly. Maybe you're not a fan of space dog shooter games, but... Lame. Well, that's, that's no judgment here, but uh, you should play Road to Corky. But anyway, so there's a, a new game that could be coming to Linux called Wrath Aeon of Ruin. I don't know if it's Aeon or not, but um, it's actually kind of interesting because it's a first-person shooter, and it has a a feel of a combination between Doom and Quake. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's an interesting st- style game, and it's made by Th- 3D Realms, which is also the creators of like classic FPS games like uh, Duke Nukem. Yeah. Yeah, and this game pays respect to the genre of like with a retro style. So that's where like it's like it's like a a nice designed. Uh, graphics, but has the style of an older FPS game like Doom. So it's like it's Doom, but enhanced sort of thing. Yeah, well, they they're saying that um, it's rumored to be added to Linux for its release in summer of 2019. So we're not quite sure yet. But what you should do is, if you're interested in this style of game, and frankly, Linux has a we need more first person shooters, more good first person shooters out there. Mm-hmm. Um, For instance, Ballistic Overkill, we love to play. We've streamed it, Michael and I, a ton. And it's still a fun game. But eventually, kind of like, okay, I want something else. And this looks like a fantastic, fun game uh, out there to play that just reminds me so much of the Duke Nukem games that I've grown up with and loved so much. But with modern graphics, but still kind of has that nostalgia twist to it. So one of the ways that you can help support games like this, if you're interested in them, is going into your settings in Steam and setting that your preferred is it your preferred system is Linux, your preferred operating right, system? Right, preferred system, yeah. And once you do that, once you add games to your wish list, what happens is the developers can see that, and they can see how many people are interested in Linux, for instance, in playing their game. So if there are specific games that you want to play on Linux, let the developers know. One way to let them know is to add these games to your wish list once you go into the settings and change that your preferred platform is Linux out there so and that's a would... great tip in general just because if you want to put your uh, when you put your preferred platform it also benefits the when you play a game it makes it uh, automatically assume linux first and then then detects whether what system you're using and the best thing about it is that if you have a game that you're wanting to play that is not on linux yet and you put it on your wish list if you don't change that they'll just see more people wanting on windows to use it but if you set it to Linux, they'll know how many people are interested in it. So, you know, a lot of people, the big argument is there's not a, people, a lot of people who are playing Linux games. Um, they're saying that the platform is not big enough. But there is a lot of people who are do play on Linux. But we just need to make sure that we go in there, change that setting to Linux so that they know that we are on this platform. That's right. 
So our spotlight, our software spotlight this week is going to be a roundtable sort of thing. Uh, so talking about our, our per preferred or even the, just like the best IRC clients for Linux. So if you're not aware what IRC is, it means Internet Relay Chat, and it is a, a protocol to do have like a chat room and uh, a variety of different servers. So the most commonly thing that's used is if you first starting into Linux, you will see uh, chat rooms that will uh, be for the projects that you're the distros you're using to get support, and these are all powered by IRC. And most commonly, they're run on the Freenode server, which is uh, the most popular open source server for IRC. But in order to do that, you need you need an IRC client. Now there are some that don't require you to, to have your own custom client. Like the, some distros will have an access to the web version of the client, or Freenode has their own uh, web client. But there are a lot of different applications for IRC in general. So Ryan, what is your top pick or what do you use specifically for IRC? Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, I also want to include our patrons that have joined us in the live show here. So if you have your favorite IRC pick, put it in the chat now and we will read it out because this was supposed to be roundtable, but we have Zeb and Noah missing. Right. Um, I've always just utilized whatever IRC came with the desktop and generally that's hex chat. So hex chat is the one that's always been in my head. And if I'm thinking, if I go, for instance, when I did, you know, the arch install, I'm like, oh, I need an IRC. I just typed in hex chat. I wasn't really aware of any other ones that people utilize because it just seems to be the most popular out there. And it works really well. It has hex chat um, based and you can use all the hex chat plugins out there if you want to enhance its functionality, but it just seemed to work. But then you told me about something the other day once again, and I was like, wow, I've been missing out this whole time. Yeah, there are quite a few uh, options, but I think that by far my favorite is called Conversation and Conversation with a K, which is made by KDE, naturally. Oh, that's shocking. I never would have right. put the two together. <laughs> no, never. Um, so there's also a lot of other IRC clients that we can talk that we're going to talk to in a minute, but I think conversation is the best because it has so many great features and it covers everything that you want an IRC client to have, but also a lot more. So let's just talk about the, the, the one of the most important features that conversation has that most IRC clients don't have is context aware, uh, nickname, uh, tab completion. So with hex chat, for example, when you go to a chat room and you see, you know, people you want to talk to, the best thing to do is to, to use their name uh, and mention them so that they get a ping on their client saying someone mentioned them directly. Because if you don't ping them, some people sit in IRC you know, all day and don't notice just random conversation. They You have to actually set their nickname and uh, mention them to get them to notice it. So with HexChat, let's say you have seven people that have a name that starts with a C. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say you want to talk to the fifth person of that seven people. In hex chat, when you go in to start typing, you would type C and then hit the tab at five times to get to the fifth person. Whereas, let's say only two of those people are actually even in the conversation or even part of it. You'd still have to hit C and hit the tab multiple times to get to it. Whereas, mm -hmm. uh, conversation is context aware. So if, let's say, those uh, out of those seven people, five are not even talking, they are not even included in the tab complete because they're not they're not even uh, they're included after the fact but they're not included by default so right. you have the first two let's say one person you're talking to and 
they are the last person who just mentioned that who just said something in the chat it will automatically detect that person is the most person who's the most recent converse, uh, chatter in the room and will apply their nick as the first one to go to so if you're having a conversation with one someone directly and you're having a, a very active conversation it will always go to the whoever is the most active in the room so uh, that could come out as an as, as another side effect that you don't want. Let's say, for example, you uh, the other second person who's ha who's active shows back up, and then it would it would tap complete them. However, it also remembers who you last uh, had a conversation with. So if you don't type anything and just hit tab, it will just re-input the one you just you just uh, completed for. So it makes it so much faster. And I know it sounds kind of like a ridiculous, convoluted approach to it, but once you start using it and you realize that. Just by hitting tab or hitting one letter and hitting tab and it actually getting the person you wanted to talk to, it makes IRC so much smoother and so much easier to do. So looking at, and I agree, and I love the auto login feature, by the way, that's there by default. The yep. second you install it, no plugins or anything else needed. It just, you set up your auto login. So every time you open it up, it automatically, you know, does the nickname serve. Uh, There's also auto uh, rooms, so you can activate directly go into rooms without having to do anything when you first start the application. Right. So uh, looking at our uh, patrons, they are saying Telegram, of course, not quite IRC, but uh, I, I most a lot of people have to that point have moved away from not a lot of people, but people are slowly moving away from things like IRC into mm -hmm. tools like Telegram. Um, Pigeon, of course, which is a good one. It's not really an IRC. Right. Just an IRC client. It's kind of an all messaging. Yeah, it's an instant messaging one. client that has IRC ability. But right. it, it once you try a, a exclusive IRC client, you'll realize that Pigeon is not not really good enough. Um, I used HexChat until Riot was brought to my attention. So we mentioned Riot recently. That's a very cool option as well. Kind of going along with the Telegram conversation yeah. of people moving away. Uh, little by little from IRC. Well, I mean, the best thing about Riot is that you can use IRC via Riot and Matrix without having to abandon IRC. So you can actually uh, go to Riot or Matrix rooms and have conversations there. But you can also, as a Riot or Matrix user, you can join an IRC room and have all the benefits of IRC, but using the Matrix clients. And it's it's a lot cooler because one of the okay, one of the negative things about IRC is that it doesn't save the history of you in that room. So right. if you're not actually physically connected to that room, you cannot get a log of that room unless you go find unless maybe the room puts it somewhere on the server. That must make the NSA so upset. Right, so upset. But <laughs> if you are using Matrix, you can log into that room and it will keep a log regardless if you're in it or not because your nick is automatically always connected even if you're not physically using it at the moment. So it makes it a lot easier to go back and look for uh, conversations that maybe had you see how many people have mentioned you or if you for example someone mentioned in the Telegram group recently about how they were going to an IRC client and they couldn't get any help then they decided to just kind of control F search in the Telegram group to see if anybody had had the had the, the solution to the problem right. and it was already posted and they already had the yep. answer. So in that kind of sense, you could do the same thing with IRC via matrix, and it makes it a lot easier and a lot more smooth to use IRC. But there are quite a few other clients as well. So, you know, IRC, if you were to show it to somebody, they would probably think, oh, this is really kind of old and outdated. But one of our patrons said that they find things like Telegram to be flooded with stickers and all sorts of noisy junk that wastes my time and drowns conversations. 
And that's true. If you, you know, some of these newer platforms, there's so many, you know, people posting different um, animations yeah. and stickers and things that can get distracting from the conversation. I'm guilty of that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, we all are, honestly. Yeah. I, mean, I found a whole penguin sticker stack. So how could you not just want to <laughs> exactly put everywhere? just put them everywhere? Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's some point to the idea if you're wanting to have a serious conversation that you don't want a lot of that stuff littering uh, the chat. Um, but you can turn some of that off too in those tools. So you can turn off so that you would actually have to click on them to play them um, as an option to remove some of That's that. True. But uh, going on, if you are looking for, I found this one, Michael, recently, Kiwi IRC for a web-based IRC client. And the reason why is if we remember the story we covered on Beaker and the decentralized web using the mm -hmm. DAT uh, websites, I was creating a, you know, HTML website real quick before our show, uh, just so I'd have it up. And one of the things I was like, it'd be cool to integrate an IRC client. So I did a search, Kiwi IRC came up and I, I did some amazing code to get it to work. I cut and paste. Yep, exactly. The code that they already generated. A ton of work. It's also backed by Pia VPN, which is very cool. That yep. gives me some faith in their project here as well. Um, but you cut and paste the code into your website, and basically you have IRC chat right there in your web, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, the uh, Kiwi is like there has been there's been a lot of like web based IRC clients along for like you know for the past ten years or so. There's been a lot of different options for it, but Kiwi has basically just taken over as far as the most used and the most useful because they have a ton of features that even regular clients will have, and it makes it a lot easier for people to for like distro developers to attach an IRC client to their website. So you just click a link for the chat room and it automatically goes to that chat room. You don't have to worry about the server or creating a nick or setting up passwords and stuff you just go right into it and get you know started talking to people uh, with like a guest account and everything so it's a um, it's a great option and it's I know a lot of people who actually do use it as their regular client um, I think it's more more useful for like a one-off of like connecting to a website and that kind of thing but it is an interesting option as well for you know if you just want to use a web you don't want to install a client you can you know log in as an individual on their servers if you want to, or on a server, not necessarily theirs, because they connect to all the big ones like Freenode and et cetera. Well, I did have a chance to talk to Zeb before the show, and he said, you know, you put all these options on there, but I want something from the command line. You know me, I love CLI-based tools. That so, is exactly Zeb, yep. Yeah, doesn't that sound like him? So WeChat and IRSSI are both command line IRC clients out there that you can use. Do you have any experience with either of these or have a favorite out of the... Yeah, I have used both and I think that they're both quite good and they they both have the same similar benefits to each other. Um, it's more of a which one you like the best. I think the, the easiest one to set up is probably WeChat, um, but uh, IRS is I, and I think it's actually pronounced IRC. I think that's actually how they're supposed to be. No kidding. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. But, that could work. Well uh, played. Yeah, I think that's what, what their goal is. But anyway, so and it's a it's a good tool as well. And uh, it's not, I mean, in comparison to each other, they're not that much different as far as setup and ex configuration and stuff, but they are command line uh, interfaces, so they are a little bit more to do than anything else like hex chat or conversation. Uh, but what's really cool is that you could put them on a server and then remote into that server via SSH and then use your uh, client in that terminal on that server and always have that server connected. So it kind of provides an uh, inf like a continuous log in that approach, 
if you wanted to do you know, like an SSH server approach, like that not necessarily wanting nice, to do like, like a, a Raspberry Pi weekend project. Yeah, you, know? you could do that. Sure, yeah. like a self-hosted approach rather than doing like a matrix thing. Uh, you know, there's there's lots of benefits to that as well, and it's also incredibly fast to use um, once you get used to the workflow. But there's a little bit of a learning curve and a barrier to entry there. But overall, it they're both good options. Um, but I am not necessarily lazy. But when it comes to IRC, I want to do is okay, is less work as as is, is needed, and that's why Absolutely. I use conversation. So yeah, uh, there's is quite a few. There's quite a few options. There's also Quassel. Can't forget to talk about Quassel. They have their own um, server structure with the core versus client approach. But I think that uh, conversation does just a few things a little bit better. I don't like having too many options, so I'm just going to use conversation. And everything looks good, and there's like 15 pages. I'm like, nah, you need. Uh, this is too much. I can't decide. I agree. That's and conversation. and conversation is a great option. So let's just go there with that go. one. There you go. And for Zeb, WeChat because he loves the terminal stuff. All right, on to our tip and trick of the week. Our tip and trick of the week is ZSync command. ZSync is a partial or differential file download um, tool over HTTP. If you've ever used RSync, then you should be familiar with this concept as it uses the same algorithm. Um, this is a very cool option for one of the, the use cases that I saw with this. So this is a command that you can type into your terminal, like where you would put rsync, you could put zsync. What this is going to do is go out and grab the pieces of that file that have changed. So one easy way to explain this is, let's say you download an ISO, a lot of ISOs, like Zeb, for instance, and you're constantly kind of distro hopping. And you're like, oh, I want to go grab the latest you know, peppermint, but you have the original version of the peppermint ISO, you could use the zsync command to go grab just what's changed with that and move it into your original file. So you're not re-downloading everything all over again. And that seems like a very cool way to save space for people like you, Michael. I don't understand what you're talking about. So as somebody who habitually runs out of space, you could use Zsync, you know, because you talked about cleaning off your system yes, and all and of a I sudden did. you have all this free space. My guess is, I'm just guessing here, you probably had multiple versions over all the years that you kept the same system of many different files. Whereas if you had used Zsync, you could have kept yourself from having that problem. How dare you guess such a ridiculous yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> I actually went back and I have multiple years of sets of files that covers up like a terabyte of data and there's at least 15 to 20 different versions of it. Yep. So yeah, this would be a much better solution than having duplicates everywhere. And if you want information on what switches and how to utilize this tool, good news, it's in the man pages. So you can just get it right there, all the information on the various options and switches that you can use to download the files that you want an update on utilizing Zsync. All right, so a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching, listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and coffee supporters. Just want to give a special shout out for all the support that you give us. And we do a live show for our patrons so you can come join us, be a part of the show, and you can join for just a dollar. That's darn near free. And Kofi is our new way of supporting us. It's either we, we've kind of either call it Kofi or coffee, but it's KO-FI. And it offers a monthly option that will allow you to get the same 
perks as Patreon. So if you prefer, you can go out there to Kofi and support us there as well. And you'll be able to join the live shows and get the unedited videos each week if you're not able to join us live. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to miss the unedited version because there's so much good content, especially this week, that you don't want to miss out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But uh, please also get back to us and let us know what you think of the show. And, you know, you can ask the Bernie question if you have one. Uh, we have various different methods. So, like, the, naturally, the, the, the most common we've talked about is the email with comments at destinationlinux.org. But we also have a Telegram group, a Discord server, a Twitter account, Mastodon. You can send messages on all these different platforms. And there's many other ways that you can that I set up. Like, there's we have probably too many methods, but there's... Everybody loves options. So if you want to try and see what all the options we have, you can go to destinationlinux.org slash contact. And please keep the comments and questions coming. We love to read them. And uh, it always helps us you know, improve the show as well as having you know, interesting discussions about different topics that you send information in. Yep. And also, we'll let you know that the fun of the show does not stop here. We also have our own individual channels. We're going to talk about just the two here who decided to show up. And I that is... <laughs> And that's Ryan. You can check out his latest episodes of his uh, his uh, Radeon Seven videos and also this heatsink video. Uh, have you done that yet? You have you I done it? It's in my system, and I have the video recorded. But it's it's ridiculous. Look how big this thing. That is, is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. When you you described it, I was like, that's about the same size as my computer. So <laughs> <laughs> so you can check, you can find out his stuff at YouTube.com/slash/dosgeek. You can also check out my content at going to tuxdigital.com and also checking out This Week in Linux with tuxdigital.com slash This Week in Linux. And you can also check out Zeb at youtube.com slash boss and Noah at Ask Noah Show. But, oh, you cave! But no, 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 no! I'm not gonna give you the full thing. You're just gonna you're not, you're just give them a partial shout yeah, just, out, just just a little bit, and that's okay. it. Right. If you want to find out more, just go to the show notes because that's all you're yeah. getting. You're getting a crumb. That's all you're getting. <laughs> so anyway, also like that smash button and share the show on social media. And everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>